Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform. With AI-powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. It's really simple. It comes down to this, feedback loops. And part of those feedback loops is really understanding what an artist or creator cares about. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, where we take you behind the scenes with the world's best marketers, growth leaders, executives, and learn from them around how they've grown their business and been successful. And so today, I'm very, very honored to be here with somebody I look up to a lot, the CMO of Artsy, Everett. What's up, man? Nice to see you. What's up, man? I look up to you. You, you shouldn't be looking up to me, man. You're the man. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely looking up to you. You and your work at Artsy is how I learned about art. It's amazing. And then I'm, of course, always joined by the Houdini of marketing himself, Kieran Flanagan. Oh, I like that one. I will be Houdini soon. Everett, just so you know, Kieran is doing the Wim Hof challenge and he's doing a lot of breath holding. A lot of breath holding. So now he's trying to learn to hold his breath as long as Harry Houdini. Right. Wow. Houdini, three minutes, 30. It's doable. David Blaine, 17 minutes. So everything is possible. Uh, I'm also trying to mint digital real estate on the Solana blockchain and it's not going through very well. But, uh, you know, life of a person in Web3. <laughs> I want to get straight into this conversation because we have a, a heck of a lot to cover. I'm going to give my artsy background to everybody because I'm a big artsy user. So I love art. I didn't always love art. I didn't feel like I understood art. I felt like art wasn't accessible. And then like two things changed my life. Artsy and then like digital art NFTs like really transformed how I thought about art and the accessibility of art and how you could work with artists. And for everybody listening, Artsy is a marketplace where you connect people who are interested in collecting art with galleries and artists to basically purchase art, learn more about art. Ever, why the heck are you doing this, man? You're a really smart, amazing marketer. Like, why are you doing this versus anything else you could be out there doing in the world? I ask this to myself every single day. No, that's, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> no, this is my purpose. I feel like for the first time in my career, I'm doing my life's work because of the impact that it's having on an industry that I'm very much passionate about. Before coming to Artsy, um, I was a collector myself. I also started my own digital platform called ArtX, which caught the attention of Artsy as a way to provide more access, especially to people of color, to the art world and collectors and artists and connecting the two. And when I met the new CEO of Artsy and really got the, the feeling that the true mission of this company was to really democratize the space, to make it more accessible. These are all the things that I genuinely care about. And to do that in a way in which people like yourself and others who may have never even thought about buying art or being interested in art are now passionate about the space. And I tell people all the time that life's better with art and you don't realize it until you experience it. As a marketer, you're always thinking about what's that moment? Like what's that moment that really impacts someone? And 
that moment for us, one is obviously the ease and ability to be able to purchase art on our platform and not go through a lot of the BS that you have to go through going to galleries, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but the moment that we artsy cannot replicate is the moment that you put an art piece on your wall for the first time. Mm. Like you can't replicate that feeling at all, even digitally. So I'm very passionate about what I'm doing. I feel like I'm doing great work. And it's not just for a check. It's not just for my own ego. It's something that's genuinely and positively impacting a space that I really believe in. Okay. So one of the things you mentioned there, I think could be valuable to everybody listening, which is I'd love for you to share your secrets around how do you reduce the barrier of entry to something that might seem either too technical, too complicated, such a high barrier of entry, a lot of consumer goods that's like art, wine, things like that. In the B2B world, you have a lot of technical products that are perceived like that. So a bunch of people listening are trying to solve that same problem as a marketer, as a business leader. How do you make this thing way more accessible to everybody? I think first and foremost, is just having an understanding of people at a human level. Art is a luxury space. When I came into Artsy, we had our definitions of what our target audience and target person was, and it didn't look like me. It didn't look like a lot of the people that we're reaching now. And really taking a step back and really asking yourself and having these conversations with people about what makes you intimidated about this space? What would make you feel more comfortable? And how can a company like Artsy make you feel more comfortable about this space? And I would hear things like, hey, I don't really see art that reflects who I am. And so at Artsy, we've done a really, really great job. Now, if you really look at our content, our brand work, our social, things that we put in emails, the way we curate things, there's something for everyone on Artsy. It's not going to just be the same white male artist, but showing people something that they can attach themselves to. So that's number one. Number two is really looking at your funnel, right? Really looking at like your onboarding, looking at your lifecycle marketing, all of your customer touch points internally, internally and externally, and ask yourself, is this really a welcoming experience? If I was someone who was interested in art or was aspiring to be a collector, is this helpful for me? Is this intimidating for me? Is this welcoming for me? So I think really taking a step back and looking at yourself a lot of companies, I think, sometimes are like, why don't they want to use our product or et cetera, et cetera, instead of looking inwardly at themselves and saying, are we doing the right job? Are we sending the right message when people come onto our platform? I remember coming onto Artsy for the first time, and I thought it was extremely confusing. And how can we help people have better experiences? And you can do that from a product perspective and a marketing perspective. And a lot of things I'm going to talk about today is that bridge between product and marketing. Can we just dig in on the first one, which is how you change people's perception of something. Because I think a lot of brands have to do that within new categories when they're trying to define the category themselves. It's much harder to do that. And I got into art through Kip. <laughs> so pseudo got into art through Artsy. <laughs> and growing up, someone like me would never buy art. Right? I grew up in a very working class family. And my preconceived notion of art is not for me. And people would look down at me if I talked to them. And so when I got to know about art through Kip, I talked to galleries and things like that. And some of them were like that. I didn't feel I belonged in that space. And then some galleries were like, oh, we're much different. We're trying to broaden the appeal of it and make art accessible to everyone. So how do you change people's perception about something when that perception is like intrinsically how they think of that thing? 
One of the things that I've tried to do at Artsy is to meet people in places that they may not traditionally feel like they would see art or be engaged with art. One of the brand campaigns that I'm most proud of that's been continuous is our partnership with Outfront Media. So when you're taking the subway train, you're going to see artsy ads. You're going to see art when you go in the subways, right? We partner with brands like Montclair and American Express and all of these different brands to open ourselves up to new audiences. Our strategy now is not the experienced collector, but it's anyone with intent and interest to buy art. Mm. And that opens up the floodgates of where you can place your brand, where you want to be, the conversations you want to have, your PR strategy, your brand strategy, your performance marketing strategy, how you're thinking about lifecycle and onboarding. All of those things are impacted when you're thinking about, hey, we're speaking to a completely different person now. And so for us, we even think about the language in which our social media posts are in. Like if you look at old artsy social media posts, it was like, do I need an art history degree to process <laughs> this Instagram story right now? Like, no, you know, we, we, we think very carefully about our copy. We think very carefully about everything that we do from our marketing to our product and how that's going to be engaging to that consumer to make them feel welcome. And also our editorial, which is, you know, the most read art editorial in the world, is highlighting these really cool people that are collecting art, that come from untraditional backgrounds, that may look like you. That's my number one thing I consume from Artsy, for sure. Yeah. Are those collector profiles. They're super interesting. It's super interesting and very vastly different people and vastly different collecting styles and things like that and different backgrounds. And again, I think it's all about making sure that people feel like themselves are reflected within the product and in an industry always. Well, and I think you said something really important there that I want to make sure everybody listening takes away is whatever and the team at Artsy did is they expanded their target market and how they thought about their market. They were always serving art collectors, but now they realized anybody could be an art collector. Anybody who had a basic interest could be a collector versus the top 1% of people with deep art backgrounds and lots of money and all of those things. And I think for most businesses out there, you think about who your customers can be in way too narrow of a lens. And there's an opportunity to really widen that aperture and widening that aperture is part of how you solve that accessibility problem. Is that kind of how you see it ever? Or do you see it differently than that? Oh, absolutely. And here's the thing, you know, what's so interesting is that for a lot of luxury niche markets, it's the 1% of the 1%, right? Only 2% of millionaires buy art. That's a crazy statistic. It is crazy. So in your head, you're thinking like, oh, most millionaires, they're buying art. This is a thing that they do. No, that's not the case, right? There's only a small sliver of people that are buying art. The bigger opportunity are the everyday people that have the funds to actually buy art and to also introduce that art collecting is for everybody and that there's things on our platform that are $100 and then there's things on our platform that are $10 million. But if you're looking for art, we have it for you. And we have a campaign coming out this year that's kind of hitting on how artsy is really for everybody. Art collecting really is for everybody. One way for our listeners to think about that is there's really two types of people you're trying to market to when you have business. There's people who understand the problem you solve. They're just trying to make a decision between your product and the other products you solve that problem, but they don't need to be convinced that they could be your customer. Like they understand that problem. Then there's all of the other people who 
don't even understand they have that problem in this case. Like they have all of these people who have the funds to buy art, but they've never even considered that they should buy art or how to buy art. I think that market is much, much bigger, but it takes you to educate and change their perception of what your product is and how it can add value to their lives. But I think that's the opportunity that most marketers fail to capitalize on. Absolutely. And as soon as I got into artsy, I said, listen, I understand that this is the focus right now. And I'm not trying to rock the boat from a product and marketing perspective, but very soon we need to widen this. We have to widen our thinking and it has completely impacted the company, ranging from everything to now NFTs and digital art and things like that. Instead of pushing back, making people feel unwelcome, I think Artsy has a very warm and inviting brand now in the art world, which has completely changed that. Mm. Look, I'm... A 32-year-old black man, I came into the role, I was 30, I just turned 30 years old. Young guy, I'm from the hood. I'm not the person that's supposed to be buying art. And I think utilizing even my own personal brand as CMO here and showing that anybody from any type of background can really do this, I think has also inspired a lot of people as well. And so I take that very seriously, that brand ambassadorship as a very important part of my role as well. One of the things they want to hit on, it seems like the best marketers and the best business leaders out there are obsessed with expanding the category versus capturing a bigger percent of what they think the category is. Like most categories are much bigger than you think they are once you fully understand the market. That's what you've done at Artsy. And that's what so many great marketers I think of the past have done is say, hey, no, it's not just this. 1% of millionaires who buy art, it's the whole world should be buying art. And why don't we solve the problem that is stopping the world from doing that versus catering to this small group of people? Absolutely. And also, here's the thing, that small group of people, a lot of them are stuck in their ways, right? Yes. When I look at the opportunity, I kind of look at it this way. So we can go off a few different audiences. We can go after the experienced collector or that audience that's already collecting art and kind of set in their ways that haven't adopted Artsy, right? Which was kind of the focus of the company when I got in there. Or we can really target this next generation of collectors that are actually interested in art. I'm not talking about trying to capture people who are not interested in art at all. Totally. But people who do have an interest in art, want to collect art, don't feel comfortable collecting art. That bucket, it's way larger. And also the amount of money and time that's going to be spent to get someone who's not using Artsy and stuck in their ways and collecting art in a certain way to move on to Artsy, that is just not low-hanging fruit at all. No. The low-hanging fruit is really... All of these people that want to buy art are interested in collecting art and just don't know how and don't know where to go and want a really easy and welcoming experience to do so. Okay, let's let's shift gears a little bit because when I think about artists today, I think of them as a key part of what a lot of people call the creator economy and creators really having power and creativity itself being more powerful than ever before. And if you have that belief like I do, then as a marketer, as a brand, you're wanting to work with those people more than ever before. You're right. Like how how can I align myself with those creators, work with those creators to really do that? You're somebody who works alongside these people every single day day. Could you give us the the cheat sheet? If you were a brand, if you were a marketing leader, how you actually think about working with these people? Maybe what are some of the best examples you've seen? Like, I think that would be super helpful to everybody listening. Yeah. 
First and foremost, rule number one, you know, Fight Club, you know, has rule number one. Yeah, rule number one. <laughs> I think the rule number one when working with creators and artists, if they're especially um, very impactful to your brand, is understanding that people, and I understand this with Artsy, that people are on my platform for the artists, not because they love Artsy. Artsy is just a conduit for them to buy discover and sell the artists that they love. So first, as a brand, you have to just embrace the fact that 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 they are probably the single most important thing. And I mean, we work directly with NFT artists and we work directly with some artists for special programs, but we are a marketplace where we have art businesses and institutions and fairs and auction houses that are selling these works on our platform. With that being said, if we don't have the buy-in from the artists, and the artists don't love our brand, they don't want their works on Artsy. Totally. That's a big thing too that we've had to work a lot for with Artsy is to build up a reputable enough brand where the hottest artists in the world were fine with their artworks being sold on our platform. So never underestimate the value of the artists and creators on your platform. Number two, I would say is feedback loops are extremely, extremely important. Creators and artists want to feel like they're being heard and feel like their feedback is actually being used to impact the product and the brand strategy. And so for us, we have tons of feedback loops for our artists and creators, and that feedback is actually implemented into our brand and product strategy consistently. And we always have this mind of customer and creative-minded approach to what we do, you know, I think a lot of brands ask themselves, like, how will their customers feel? But also we ask not only how our customers feel and our partners will feel, but how will creators and artists feel about this thing, right? That's going to be extremely, extremely important. Mm -hmm. For instance, one of the things that we're thinking about right now is visible pricing. Visible pricing is a really big thing that like has like been like taboo in the art world. And, you know, we have more and more visible pricing, but if we were to flip the switch and say, hey, mandatory visible pricing, how is that going to impact artists and creators and how are they going to feel? Not only just the art world businesses, but how are the creators going to feel about this as well? And so I think having those constant feedback loops, but also being very centrally minded around your artists and your creators on your platform and always thinking about them as you're building new products and the brand and marketing campaigns that you're building as well. Yeah, it's, it seems like your point of view is very similar to our point of view at HubSpot. We, we have a creator program for business creators on YouTube and podcasts and everything. And it seems like what you're really saying is let the creator lead. Yeah. You're not there to get a little input and do what you want to do anyway. Yeah. You're there to let them lead and, and help them tell their story in a better way and kind of hold on and be a part of it a little bit. But it's really their story, their vision, their message to share. That seems like one of the commonalities I've seen from the best partnerships. Do you agree, disagree? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. You want them to respect you because once they lose respect, they're going to look elsewhere. They're going to look for other platforms to engage with. I mean, you see it all the time in social media when a creator or creators feel like they don't have the freedom that they want on the platform or that platform are doing things that are intentionally, I'm not going to call anyone out, but are intentionally damaging a creator's ability to be successful, they're going to look elsewhere. 
That's just what happens. And so for us, we don't want people to look elsewhere. We want artists to feel like their sense of identity is at Artsy. Their reputation is at Artsy. When you Google most artists, the first thing that's going to come up is their Artsy page. We have a sense of pride for that. And we want our artists and creators to have a sense of pride of their Artsy page. That That's something they want to share, almost like their own social media or their own website as well. And that's something that also I didn't touch on is giving creators and artists a sense of identity on your platform is extremely extremely important. I think that's a great point about creators in terms of making sure the creator leads. One of the things that we really had to wrestle with and figure out as part of our creator program is creators want editorial and creative control. All of this content is getting released on our media network. And so that was really a learning experience for us in terms of how do we maintain the fact that we wanted to have the creators feel like they were in charge of the editorial and creative control, but there were like some places where we had to be a little bit more stringent on what you can and can't do. And that balance was tough. One of the things I wanted to touch on in creators, and you kind of mentioned it as one of the thing about artsy is creators are as much of the product experience as the art. People buy from creators. People want to get to know the creators. People want to buy the work of the creators. What has worked really well in shining the light on creators? Yeah, for us, it's, it's really utilizing every single channel we have. Every social media channel, our content and editorial, our curatorial. So our curatorial, we create collections all the time, bringing attention to artists that we want to spotlight in their practices for people to buy on our platform. We do partnerships with artists, drops with artists, benefit auctions with artists. We're always trying to figure out different ways where we can spotlight them and really shed light on what they're doing. And <laughs> artists and creators love social media. <laughs> oh, they love it, man. They lose their mind. They lose their minds. One of the strategies that we've been doing is how can we do this as early as possible, right? Like think about you guys, like you still remember the first interview that you ever gave or the first speaking engagement. Yes. If Artsy can validate an artist early and show them love on social media or editorial or collection or artists on our radar is one of the things that we have. Mm. The brand loyalty that's created by doing that is incredible. And so we understand that we have the biggest social media audience in the commercial art world. So we understood the power of spotlighting and people talk about, you know, what's the power of social media and what's the power of editorial and content? That is when they're in our emails, our emails go out to millions of people. The ability to spotlight them in our emails and our content and our social is something that's really, really special to them. Well, I think what's really awesome about that point that I want everybody listening to take away is you have to understand the unfair advantage of your situation. Yep. In Artsy's case, an artist ever makes, what, 20 works a year, we'll say on average, just for, for the sake of conversation? It really depends on the artist, but yeah. Yeah, it's not hundreds, it's tens. And so if you share an artist out to millions of people, the sensitivity of that, that is life-changing. They could sell all of their work for the entire year in a day. And that is unbelievable power. And you're saying it the right way, which is like you can use that to build amazing affinity within the community and have that long-term brand affinity to really build a community long-term, which I think is one of the things you all have done a great job of is focusing and building a new type of community around art that just has never existed before. And I think anybody out there listening 
whatever the market you're in, you can take that same approach and look at what is the sensitivity in my market? What is the unfair advantage I can bring to shine the light on people who probably don't get much attention, but with that attention would be huge advocates and help me grow my business and my brand? It's really simple. It comes down to this. When you asked me the initial question, I said the feedback loops. And part of those feedback loops is really understanding what an artist or creator cares about. For us, we know that artists on our platform care about exposure. That's why social is such a huge thing. They want to be able to sell works. That's why being part of our editorial and and, in our emails and allowing people to make commercial actions towards their work is extremely important. And lastly, they want to feel validated. They want to feel that Artsy supports them, supports their work, supports them as an artist, and has given them that stamp of approval. And so whenever you're working with creators, you got to listen to them and just know what they want. If your creators are telling you, hey, our engagement is getting cut, we can't reach people anymore, you have to listen to the creators and know the things that they're seeking and what they're looking for. How do you keep creators happy if they all want exposure? You can't support all of them, I assume. You can't give them all a tweet. You can't give them all the same amount of love. How do you categorize creators into different groups? Yeah, well, at the end of the day, you have to have guardrails. Number one, our biggest guardrail is that we're not going to promote an artist that isn't represented by someone on our platform. Mm -hmm. That already cuts off millions of artists around the world. This is not just any artist. This is either a gallery represented or an artist working with a gallery. So that already lowers the number tremendously. Then also from a supply strategy standpoint is a huge part of what I'm thinking about as a marketer. I want to put first and foremost, what we consider our premier P1 supply. We understand that our collectors, at the end of the day, you're still balancing the artist thing, but we also still, it's the balance of still serving our collectors and still serving our partners. And we're here to sell art. So we can't just put up any work by any artist all the time. We do our best to promote emerging and and artists that are breaking out and establishing markets for people. But at the end of the day, we still kind of have parameters around where does this fall in our supply strategy and our brand strategy? Is this aligned in anything that we do? Okay. We like to do a little lightning round every once in a while. What was the first artwork you ever bought? The first artwork that I ever bought was, (laughs) it's funny. It's a piece called nine to five. And it's about not being a slave to your job. <laughs> I love that. This by this artist named Jonathan Henriquez. Funny story. The reason I even started collecting art, I was in Boston, actually. Oh, nice. I was speaking at this event for, I think it's Ad Club in Boston or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was a keynote speaker and they had this artist there, Jonathan Enriquez, and he was raffling off some of his works and I actually won the work. Nice. And then I brought the work home and I put this art piece on my wall and I was like, what the heck? My walls are really blank. And that's when I bought the second piece from him and that was the first piece that I bought. That's a dope story. Very cool. Lightning round question two. What's the biggest marketing mistake you've ever made? Ooh, the biggest marketing mistake I ever made I think the biggest marketing mistake I ever made, it was during my time as CMO of Sticker Mule and not understanding 
truly how to invest in a team and put them in a position to be successful. Up until that point, I had worked at smaller companies and I was very much like, I'm the best. I got to be the best. It was all about me. Like I was tinkering. I was doing all the experiments. It was so much of that. Going to a company with a bigger team, I really did not understand how to invest in people and set them up for success. And when I look at my career, I always look at that one. It was my first CMO role. I was still thinking almost like Michael Jordan, like I got to score 35 points. I got to score 40 points instead of like, I need to get 10 assists here. <laughs> yeah. What's the campaign you've run in your life that you're most proud of? Ooh, these are tough questions, man. <laughs> they are tough questions. The campaign that I've run that I'm the most proud of. The one that sticks out was when I was CMO of Skirt, which was an on-demand rental car company that got acquired. We were doing okay, but you know we still didn't have a lot of like demand. We're new in the market and things like that. And uh, we did this billboard campaign called A Car in Your Pocket, and we put them all over LA. And in the billboard campaign, there's literally a guy with a jean, with his jeans, and there's like a car in his pocket, but it looks like a bulge. <laughs> <laughs> we sold out our cars for the rest of the summer. Like, it was insane. It was like viral, like Business Insider even picked it up. It was crazy. And like being able to do something that was risque and taking a chance and seeing like the actual impact. And a lot of people, when they when they think of like out of home and things like that, people are kind of mum on that. But to see the impact of that was, was really incredible. All right. Last lightning round question. What artist do you most wish to have in your home someday that you don't today? Oh, man. I would have to say Carrie James Marshall. Oh, that's a very, very good one. For folks who don't know, very amazing black artist. Incredible, incredible work. Beautiful, yeah. That's awesome. Kieran, I feel like we have a lot of ground to cover, but I feel like we haven't talked Web3 with Everett yet, and we should talk a little Web3 stuff, right? I was going to say, when are we going to do the NFT thing? <laughs> well, it's NFTs and it's also decentralized technology tokens as it comes to marketing. I think there's a lot of stuff, but you want to kick us off on the Web3 side of things, Kieran? Yeah, well, Web3 is changing the way we think about creators, which I think is great, right? We had an episode where we talked about how this was good for the world. Most people are more creative than they're allowed to be. Web3 is going to helpfully shine a light on more creators and help people be more creative. It would be cool just to get your two cents to begin with is how do you think about NFTs in relation to the traditional artwork? Like, are you a fan? You like some of the stuff? You don't like some of the stuff? Like, what is your real raw opinions on the digital art movement, NFTs, all that stuff? Yeah, <laughs> I felt like I was the grumpy old man when I first heard about NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> I was on Clubhouse, you know, that thing that people used to be on. Oh, I, I heard you on Clubhouse. You were a little grumpy a couple of times, man. Yeah. And my first reaction, I had this visceral reaction to it where it felt like a, a, a scheme, like it felt like a money making scheme from like, like when I started hearing my buddies in Silicon Valley talk about digital art, I'm like, you guys don't give a shit about art. Can I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys don't care about art. And so I was already kind of like on edge about it because the people that I saw being really interested in it initially were people that never showed any interest in art. And instead of being like, wow, that's really cool that these people that have never been interested in art are interested in art. And it's literally, I'm being so hypocritical. Now I think back on it, I'm being so hypocritical because that's my whole mission. 
in the first place. <laughs> so when I first came across it, it was very much, oh, I don't trust this. This doesn't feel right. And then I took a step back, took a breather. I had people reach out to me because, because look, like the things I say matters in the art world. And I had digital art creators and people in the space reach out and it was like, hey, I just want to have a conversation. And so I started having conversations and I started to learn about the space and the history. It's not new. No, it's been around a long time. And the more and more I learned about it and the more and more I saw how this was opening the world for people to embrace art in a new way and new people to embrace art, I started to fall in love. Because at the end of the day, it is what I'm all about, you know? And this is just a new medium. From photography to painting to sculpture, digital art is just a new medium. And now that more and more people are going to be spending time in Web3, people are going to have digital art collections. One day you're going to go over someone's house in Web3 and like literally check out their collection. It's going to be insane. Hell yeah. Part of that is like utility is now getting bundled with digital art, you know, like offline event access, ability to participate in communities, all, all of that stuff. And it's bringing the art world and the online community world much closer together. I think that's fundamentally an awesome thing. How do you see that shaping how marketers are going to build communities long term? Yeah, I think ultimately, as a marketer, you got to think about what are the pros and the advantages of Web3, right? And here's the thing. You can buy digital art and you can buy something super cool, digital art that costs barely anything. It doesn't have to cost you 10 ETH. You can buy something that's like $100 easily or that people are making digital art drops where it's $150, things like that. Like you can have that. And so I think really highlighting what makes that space special is what marketers will have to lean into. One of the biggest things that is tough for me is that I am limited by my actual physical space. I live in New York. Yeah. And what's so cool about digital art, you're not limited by space. You know, you're not limited by the same things of like having to buy insurance and having to hang these things up and do this and do that. There's so many advantages to that. And I think instead of pushing away what makes it different, embrace what makes it different and what makes it special. One of the things you said is really important. And one of the pluses of a lot of what's happened in Web3 is it lowers the amount of money someone has to have to buy their first art piece, like maybe a digital art piece. But now I don't like it look completely lowers the floor and it makes it become much more common at a much earlier age. And then a high proportion of those people will go from spending their first hundred dollars on Solana or Avalanche or Ethereum buying on one of these chains and then migrate into buying offline art and then go into discover some of the great artists and artsy and stuff. And I think that's what I love about it. It's the same thing if you talk to people about, hey, I don't need to buy this kind of bar of gold. I can buy a fraction of a digital gold coin and I can start to think about my wealth in, in a much earlier age. And I think that is a good thing for the human race. Yeah, 1000%. I mean, Justin Sun, who I'm sure you guys are familiar with, when the Beeple went for 69 million, he was the underbidder and he wanted to actually bid more. He's been very active buying traditional art and physical art as well. Him getting the taste of the NFT space has increased his appetite for the other sides of the art world as well. Well, and one angle of this that we talked, the Kieran and I talked about on a different show that I'd love your take on is one of the things in the NFT space is the art holder normally holds some type of intellectual property rights and often commercial rights. And you're seeing 
Coinbase is offering Board at Yop Club holders licensing deals to license individual ape IP, and you're seeing this happen more and more. How do you see the intersection of intellectual property and licensing with brands and this new frontier of art? Do you think it's going to be kind of a passing fad, or do you think everybody is going to be doing some type of IP licensing over, over time? It's really unclear for me. It's funny. Some brands are doing it right, but like, I feel like some brands are like trying to be cool with the cool kids right now and they don't really know what they're doing. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And it's like, what's that one actor? And he's like, what's up, kid? Like, what's up, cool kids or something like that? I can't remember. Uh, Matt Damon? No, no, it's uh, something. Yeah. Yeah. It's the guy from uh, Boardwalk Empire. Yes. Yes. But that's kind of how I feel with like a lot of brands when it comes to this right now. Here's the thing about the NFT space. People know when things are inauthentic. And if it's inauthentic, they just don't vibe with it at all. And so if brands are going to do this, they really need to bring some type of consultancy or something in-house. Like I see some things go out there and I'm like, they've 1000% haven't spoken to the right people before doing it. <laughs> right. I love that. Okay, we, we're about at time, so we do need to finish up. For everybody listening, please, please rate the podcast five stars if you love it. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Everett, I want to close you out with one, one last and important question. To you, what is the biggest future-looking trend in marketing? So we've gotten to the point with all of this technology, automation, dashboards, everything like that. When it comes to performance marketing and the science behind marketing, I just feel like anybody can do that now. Oh, hot take. I love it. Coming in hot. We have the technology. We have the insights. It takes someone really, really wanting to screw up and not looking at the data to screw up that side of marketing. Because look, I I don't know if you guys know this, but I mean, I came from the school of Sean Ellis. Like I started growthhackers.com with Sean Ellis, who coined the term growth hacking. My background comes from growth marketing and everyone's raved about it. What I think is missing now in marketing is truly genius brand marketing, people who really understand brand. It's harder to hire great brand marketers than it is a performance marketer at this point. And so to me, if you can really stake your claim and, and really understand while still you know being able to drive OKRs and KPIs and things like that, if you can really, really be a great brand marketer, and a data-driven brand marketer right now, I think that is like one of the most valuable things that you can do. I love that. You and Kieran are holding the same corner in the marketing world down. Kieran's been preaching that for a little while to me and people who would listen. So I love that. Yeah, differentiated and storytelling. Like you need to be different. You need to tell a story and you need to stand for something. You're just not going to be able to get by with trying to outperform everyone on these kind of performance metrics and KPIs. You really need to stand for something. And I think that's going to be more and more important because every category you're in is going to become more and more saturated. And we all know what everyone else is doing and we're trying to replicate what they're doing. And so to your point, in an earlier episode, Kip, like you need to take the polar opposite. You need to take the counterintuitive position and try to take yourself out of the crowd. And to do that, you need to be an amazing storyteller, very creative and a great brand marketer. I totally agree, Everett. Awesome, man. Thank you, Everett, so much for joining us. We appreciate you so, so much for taking time out of your day. Thanks for everybody listening to this week's episode. Thanks, guys.